This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is your first substitute Robin, game design writer Gareth Ryder-Hanrahan. And this is your other substitute Robin, writer and game designer Rob Hainsell. And this is that beloved podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And with brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Live from Indianapolis. The non-virtual Indianapolis. At the regularly scheduled dates. I'm really supposed to read this next. Yes, yes, yes you In are. In the lavish splendor of Hyatt Wolf Studio One. <laughs> at Gen, Gen Con. Con. Yeah. Right. We're not bots. <laughs> Thank Depending you. on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Weird anecdotes. Tradecraft. The secrets of fiction. Board and card game design. And of course, food! Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now. Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dino-rific? I do dare say dinorific. There's the plain Gia core book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. Welcome, everybody, to Ken and Rob and Gar Talk About Stuff Live. First of all, if you are a Patreon backer, a beloved Patreon backer, please raise your hand or otherwise signal your presence so that all those here can reverence you appropriately. (laughs) Reverence them! There we are. Now... There is a a bit of business that we always like to do at the live show, which is that in the excitement of answering your questions, we will forget to repeat your questions. So what we need is for you guys to stay on our ass, and if we forget to repeat the question... Shout as one voice, repeat the question. So let's try it. Let's, let's pretend that you've asked a cogent question and I've started to answer it. Well, basically, I think it really all comes down to... Repeat the question! Thank you. Beyond that, keep that energy up. And now I believe we have a broadcast from Toronto. I believe so, if this works. And if it doesn't, then we're all in trouble. Attention Gen Con attendees. It's Robin Lotz here, and I'm very sorry to not be able to attend this Gen Con and this Ken and Robin live recording in person. Uh, If it's any consolation, I'm in a much less fun place than you are. But without further ado, I still want to perform my essential duty in any Ken and Robin live, and that is to unveil the Nerd Trope cards. These, of course, are the cards supplied to us by Kalev Tate. And uh, this time around, I'm going to draw the nerd card and Ken, the nerd card is War of the First Coalition. I'm going to draw the trope card Talking Animals. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see it. 
All right, War of the First Coalition, for those who came in late, uh, begins in 1792. It's the war of the reactionary powers against the French Revolution. It runs until basically the cannonade at Valmy, which shuts down the attempt to invade France. So what we have is the Austrians, the British, the Spanish, the Russians aren't part of it because they're too far away, but various Italian powers are all mad at the French Revolution, not least because the French believe that they should export their revolution to Austria, England, various Italian principalities, and Spain. So, uh, in a throwdown, we have a situation where we have a revolutionary regime and a surrounding matrix of hostile powers. Now... As we all know from George Orwell's documentary, Animal Farm, the first thing that happens when the revolution comes is animals learn to talk. (laughs) So what we have is uh, various animals approaching the National Convention, demanding representation. The National Convention is at this point open to all kind of ideas, and they're like, yes, absolutely, horses, pigs, anything that can talk should get a vote. Not parrots, they're just trained to talk, they can't actually talk. But uh, the talking animals become their own département of France, a distributed département. They have their own representatives, uh, as always. They vary radically between, you know, the stolid, uh, bourgeois, almost neo-monarchist, dare I say, dogs, the um, independent libertarian is perhaps too strong a word, but Jeffersonian, let us say cats, and, of course, the radical Jacobin pigs. Those become the main uh, factions within the convention. And because talking animals are cool and more interesting even than a scrofulitic journalist uh, like uh, Marat or a tiny little shrill-voiced goof like Robespierre, they rapidly rise to positions of power. And so, for Fortunately for them, the horses just basically agree with whoever voted. They're good citizens, the horses. And so French cavalry is suddenly vastly more effective because they can talk to the horses and say, hey, you think we ought to charge that that bastion? The horse is like, are you insane? And so the French don't do so much of that. The natural advantages of the French levy on mass are amplified by the levy on mass of animals. You have uh, donkeys eagerly pulling loads for the revolution and then spreading their talking habits into the roads and logistic networks of the opposing enemies. So the Austrians, you know, their wagon trains get into range of France. Suddenly their horses are like, screw this noise. <laughs> and uh, their, their donkeys like overturn the ammunition carts. It's madness. It's hysteria. It's crazy talk. Fortunately for the cause of reaction in England, there happens to be a number of talking beavers, a fawn, I believe, named Mr. Tumnus, if I have that right, if the historical data are correct, and they emerge from a wardrobe somewhere in the depths of Whitehall and say, we've seen this movie before, it doesn't end well, we think perhaps the evil god Tash is behind it, Uh, William Pitt is grasping at straws, Um, various uh, uh, rumors throughout London of cats talking, spreading um, uh, the the, the gospel of every man for himself and more scritches for me, it's incipient chaos, and so therefore, your team of Narnian talking animals must infiltrate the French Revolution and bring down Pigspear. 
Bear, the uh, Jacobin tyrant, before he drowns France in a welter of almost entirely human blood. Or, conversely, you get to play noble French uh, insurgent animals overthrowing the kingdom of the Netherlands. Why not? No one likes the kingdom of the Netherlands. Jerk Dutch never did anything for anyone. Can't even eat tulips. What kind of situation is that for a horse? So really, it's your choice. It's, it's dealer's choice who you play, but obviously you're playing animals because as previously discussed, animals cooler than people. That was right on the wall in Animal Farm. <laughs> Do we have any questions? <laughs> yes. Scarlet Pumpernickel. Scarlet Pumpernickel. He restated. <laughs> the, the question is Scarlet Pumpernickel. Uh, that was a good Daffy Duck cartoon. Excellent. Um, also, uh, if I that's guess a I'm asking more broadly, what about the status of ducks in the revolution? The status? Oh, you want to extend the nerd trope? Um, well, I, I think that we can basically assume that. And feel free to jump I, I, in. Uh, Gar, I will if you have, like you know, the, yeah. if you have duck knowledge, bring it. No. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Rob, do you, do you have anything to contribute? Uh, in rate, uh, so you should. Mallard, the Mallard factor, as it is called. Um, <laughs> although the ducks at first like go along with the revolution, it sort of becomes clear to people, people, yeah. decades later when they can actually sort of piece together what happened. That the ducks were always death cultists. Oh, and they don't. Yeah. They don't care who dies. Nice. So. So. And all, and all this all this stuff just perfect for them. Yeah. So the yeah. so so the so the so you're saying that Narnia and Glorantha are basically battling it out over the corpse of revolutionary. That's, that's right. All right. Yes. Well, I think that that definitely is a capper on the nerd trope. Ask another question that is not about the nerd trope. Something. <laughs> down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city clamber through underground ruins infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival backstab your way to power and influence in swords of the serpentine the gumshoe game of swords and sorcery investigation and intrigue by kevin culp and emily dresner and your mighty feud pals at pelgrane press Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesize secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. Anybody? Yes. What did the city of Chicago do to be cursed with Malort? <laughs> what did the city of Chicago do to be cursed with Malort? Well, if we started listing the infamies of the city of Chicago, we would be here literally all day. I think, by and large, uh, what it did was be an open and unchallenging vector for Swedish immigration. That was its main mistake in terms of Malort uh, acquisition. Also... Uh, Chicago has a lengthy history 
of uh, home brewing and distilling as uh, trades in Chicago. Most American cities had this uh, before the rise of uh, national uh, liquor chains, but Chicago especially did because it was full of Irish and Germans. And in fact, literally the first riot in Chicago history was when the tiny band of Quakers and Puritans who ran the city in the 1830s said, you know what we should have? Prohibition. <laughs> and you know what the Irish and Germans said we should have? A riot. <laughs> Fortunately for the city, they all rioted on one end of a bridge, and the city just closed the bridge, and that sort of calmed everyone out. But it's that sort of uh, spirit of revolution that uh, maintains Chicago's thriving speakeasy and now distilling industries. So I guess specifically, if you're asking the original sin of Chicago that brought the Lord upon it, it would be tamping down the beer riot in 1845, whatever it was. That would be the original sin, and of course, as you know, you do evil comes back at you threefold. So preventing Irish people from making beer gets you malort. So out of curiosity, yeah. I want to see from the audience how many of you, because I'm not using the word us, have drunk malort. Oh, my oh. God. Ah, okay, well, for those who can't see it, yes. an awful lot of hands went up. Yeah. Of people and, who look otherwise okay. And, um, and <laughs> unlike Patreon backers, do not pat yourself on the back. <laughs> for, for the, it's for not the, okay the day I drink the Malort. Ah, okay, all right. For the international audience, like me, what the hell's Malort? <laughs> a Malort is fundamentally a wormwood spirit. Like absinthe. No. <laughs> Absinthe is both good and strong. Right. Malort is neither. Well, it's, it's bad and it's somewhat strong. Okay. Malort's like, what, 130 proof, something like that? 120 proof? Yeah, it's. It, it's not it, it's not butch like uh, absinthe, which is 160 proof. Um, Malort is fundamentally it is it's a wormwood spirit. It's fr- there's a, a number of Swedish liqueurs that are basically Malort. Jepson's Malort is the brand in Chicago, and it can most easily be likened to drinking rancid feet. <laughs> so don't do it. <laughs> yes. Why does the King in Yellow keep getting restaged despite the fact that every show causes madness and chaos? The question is, why does the King in Yellow keep getting restaged despite the fact that every show causes madness and chaos? I mean, I think that there's a lot of possible answers for that. Gar or Rob, do you want to it's take... It's clear that here is a testament to the, the human spirit of hope and optimism that this time, this time we'll get it right. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, they keep making Fantastic Four movies. <laughs> Gener- every generation of actor and director um, like toiling, perfecting their craft for no one, for no one, for no result, just has this feeling that it's, this is, I, I feel like this is going to have an impact. Also, the, uh, in, in terms of the canon answer, Chambers says that the play is perfect in its poisonous beauty. And so when you read the prose, uh, it obviously it enters into you, you, you become obsessed, you uh, are open to the uh, winds of Carcosa off the lakes of Hali, but also you really fall in love with the prose, right? Uh, people in the, in the short stories even are quoting bits of it uh, at all times, the, the scallop tatters uh, of the king will um, uh, hide you till forever, etc. And my thesis is that just as when you read Shakespeare, you have a strong urge to see it performed, assuming you have any beauty in your soul at all, when you read The King Yellow, it must be even stronger than that, that you almost can't resist doing it. And in many ways, that that would be one of the things that The King in Yellow does to get his hooks into you is to draw a performance out of you. And if you're in a position where you happen to have a theater that you think, oh, a little controversy would be good for our theater, then off you go. I mean, 
literally uh, in the in the same almost the exact same year King and Yellow came out. Per Ubu was performed, right? And that caused madness and chaos in real life. So, you know, good for you, France. <laughs> when will you write the addendum to your book, The King in Yellow, detailing how the party delays the out, like the outcoming of The King in Yellow, your book, um, as we all know happened? Do you want to repeat that? <laughs> all right. When will I, and I believe by I he means either Robin or the nameless author of The King in Yellow, write the addendum to the game Yellow yeah, King? The game, the addendum to the game Yellow King, detailing how the game Yellow King, which you know, got delayed very often. Right, yes. Was yes. Caused by the right, okay. Oh, now yeah, I get yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thank you. it was a much better question than I heard. <laughs> um, this is a killer question, and Robin will love it. Um, <laughs> When will I, meaning Robin, write the addendum <laughs> to the Yellow King role-playing game that is the scenario in which a party of This Is Normal Now players yes. critically delay the publication of the uh, Yellow yes. King role-playing game? So basically we have a scenario where you're breaking into a Lithuanian printing press. Yes. <laughs> and hijacking a, a, a shipment of Slovenian magnets. Yeah. <laughs> Until finally the Estonians exactly. come through. Right. Yeah. Well, and then the players have to desperately trap the king in yellow yeah, exactly. in Los Angeles uh, customs. Yeah, we, we are researching it even now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Right. As a group of players heroically LARP intercepting it. But, but wait a minute. In the customs wait, the news today was that it's no longer in customs. Remember? Oh, it, worth it, it, was loaded, they, they wait, clue. it was loaded onto a truck, but no one knows where the truck is. Oh! <laughs> so, oh. they got... We are yeah, either right. LARPing or researching or playtesting that scenario right now. That's, that's the answer to your question. That was terrific. Yeah. Uh, in 2021, the last Shaker community in the United States went from two to three members. Whoa! If this 50% annual increase continues, what can we look forward to in the future? <laughs> uh, the, the question is that the last remaining Shaker community in the United States went from two to three members, a 50% annual increase. Uh, obviously, as everyone who reads the New York Times knows, two data points is a trend. Um, and so, therefore, what does the future hold in terms of the Shaker apocalypse? Uh, Rob or Gar Shirley, you have something on this. Um, communities of furniture making vol cells. A lot more cabinets, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Finally, I'll have enough bookshelves. Exactly, I think that's yeah. step one. Rob? Okay. Um, with the uh, increasing rise of problems with NCAA sports and sponsorship and like like the inability to make competitive leagues an audible gasp went through the room <laughs> um, the Shakers as a group that mirrored a kind of enthusiasm and physical performance become a leading figure in the rehabilitation of college sports with faith-based initiatives, which as you may notice, America is dangerously trending towards in all kinds of weird ways. And the end result is that the uh, the Shaker Conference takes over the middle of the country and is sort of all the schools that were unable to be part of, of, the, Big uh, 12. of the Big 12. Right. Um, and they all have amazing furniture in their in their, in their locker rooms. <laughs> and, and, and their cheerleaders just quiver with ecstasy and then fall over. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So it's just like Alabama. All right. <laughs> Who's next? Um, yeah. 
So for the um, Illuminati scenario for uh, this is normal now, what is the um, one unique uh, <laughs> mechanic? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm proposing a, a, an Illuminati um, scenario for this is normal now. Right. What is the misinformation mechanic? All right. For the Illuminati scenario for This is Normal Now, what is the unique mechanic that has never been seen before, at least not that anyone here remembers? Yeah, for misinformation. Yes. Specifically. Misinformation. All right. So this would, I guess, be an uh, inversion of the standard gumshoe where you always get the core clue. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, I think mm-hmm. what it winds up looking like to me is, and feel free to riff uh-huh. off this, um, is in the dying earth you had the taglines right that got introduced and you would get points for introducing them to play yeah. I think you have a number of misinformations <laughs> that right. when you get the core clue if you also adapt oh, you, a, a actually, misinformation you, you a bunch of like Steve Jackson games Illuminati cards to the players like you work in these right you could also <laughs> do that exactly. and then that by working a misinformation of the clue and this would depend you could have a soft or a hard version the yes. soft version is you just remove a shock card because you now have a comforting if wrong belief <laughs> the hard version is you remove a shock card and deal a shock card to another player right? because, they, because yeah. they're like how can you seriously believe that oh yeah I like the hard version yeah I think you did I uh, yeah. figured you would yeah, yeah. Right. okay great The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Next question. Yeah. So, as we are dealing with um, absent players right now in this mm. interim instance, uh, and I think many of us have dealt with this, especially during uh, the time of COVID, <clears throat> players not showing up. And as you're sort of thinking about a campaign, do you have any recommendations of types of campaigns, not just systems, but types of campaigns that play better with, say, certain players don't show up on a regular basis? Think that when it comes to fluidity or when it comes to the ability essentially to keep the game going even when you don't meet your quota. So the question is, uh, in our era of uh, increased player absenteeism, is there a type of campaign that you can set up that will uh, respond better to that kind of absenteeism, or at least be a more reliable workaround to it? And Gar, you want to... The obvious easy solution is if you can set things up so that each session, each adventure ends at the end of a session, and each session is self-contained, so 
you go back to headquarters and next week it's another case and you're going to try and solve that in that one session so if players are missing that week it's a smaller team that gets sent out but that's easy mode obviously because it's quite hard to have a scenario that fits into one session every time I fiddle with games where there are sort of dimensional shifts going on and like you've got say, two worlds happening and players get drawn from one to the next and people can sort of like you know, either pull back by dimensional flux or don't make it to the portal and catch up the next week another option is just to at the start of the campaign have sort of caught up with the players that like you know your character will be off doing something or someone else can play that character or they like you know lurk in the back of the party depends a lot on how cruel the GM is being in terms of attacking absent player characters obviously the one thing you don't, don't want as we've all had in dungeon games is like you know ah who'll try the door Bob's not here Bob's character tries the door <laughs> oh look Bob's character fell into the pit is Bob alive? Who's going to ring Bob? <laughs> if you oriented a campaign, if you knew that was going to be your problem in the campaign, and you figured out what the actual agenda of each of your characters was, and then oriented sessions around the agendas of players who are there. <laughs> and so it takes a little bit of a like different pacing, but what you would do is just, you know, if that person's agenda is never going to come up when they're not there because it's actually their character driving things instead of the world attacking them. So, so it's sort of, yeah, instead of reactive. I would uh, think of something that could be an iterative troop-style game. So the classic example of troop-style play is Ars Magica. Every player has a wizard character. There's a, a few companion characters, uh, you know, fighters and nobles. And then there's a bunch of grogs, you know, uh, shield bearers and uh, cannon fodder that are held basically in common by the whole group. So you would basically run the game in such a way that you could play iteratively so that at no point do you necessarily need to come back? So the, the Magi, let's keep it in Ars Magica, are all, you know, at the Covenant. They each have their uh, little mission to go out on. You know, Bob takes his Magus and a couple of companions and a bunch of grogs, and he goes off in one direction. And if Bob comes back next week, great, we're still doing that. If Bob doesn't come back, well, now it's time for Sarah and her mages, and she goes off in a different direction with her group. And then, you know, maybe Sarah doesn't come back, Bob doesn't come back, what the heck? Now it's Ali, and Ali gets to take his magus off in another direction. And because grogs are very interchangeable, and because companions can generally be sent off on a side quest, you know, run this yeah. back to the Covenant, we need to tell them what we've just found out you can as long as you're comfortable and the players don't insist on minute to minute chronology you can probably run this sort of iterative play and then when everyone's together yeah. bring everything together in a climax Ars Magica is so flexible in that regard that I recall one session where the GM was the player that was missing <laughs> and he came in like you know, we just like started playing with our grogs he came in about two hours late and asked what was going on and we said oh we're building a cathedral went, what? <laughs> they were building a cathedral on top of my character who they had thrown down a well having worked out he was possessed by the devil he wasn't, he was just wanted to be the Pope so they thrown down a well and were trying to build a cathedral on top of him and the GM was just there going <laughs> what happened to my game? <laughs> where did this come from? who are you people? you know there's one thing I actually do and I, running 13th age I will treat the person who's not there as a possible source of complications and so everybody knows that if they miss the game, I'm not going to do anything to their characters. I'm going to do things to the other people's characters based on them not being there. 
so that they will then get blamed for it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, another question. Yes. Food hub question. Yeah. Each of you, how do you take your steak? Rich Ranallo, beloved uh, friend of the program, asks, how do we take our steak? Uh, Gar? I'm Fred Jerks, like medium rare. I don't eat that much steak, actually, because I have digestive hemochromatosis, which is this uh, thing where my blood retains too much iron. It's a very common disease in Ireland because of the potato famine and the lack of iron in the diet. <laughs> so um, you've Lamarckian... Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so basically, Ireland is like the first step to being matter eater lad. <laughs> I believe that's our national motto, but it's, it's, right, it's yeah. in Irish, so it sounds or, or maybe Pharaoh lad, one of the lads. <laughs> well, leaving this space wide open for Ken, my answer would be rarely. <laughs> Whoa. Most of the times that I eat steak are either a New York strip or more ideally a Kansas City strip. And for those steaks, especially if you can get a good dry-aged steak... Uh, you want to taste the beef as much as you possibly can, which is why I get it as rare as I possibly can. Pittsburgh, as they say. If you're having a ribeye or a steak with more marbling or something that needs more time, I will allow it to go up to medium rare because you need the uh, the, the fat to separate out and um, be part of the, the flavor, right? Eating a, rare, a ribeye rare is wrong. It, it's, you're misusing the ribeye. You need to cook it more so that the fat will render throughout the meat. But basically, anything over medium and you are a howling barbarian. In a number of procedural shows, a guest star is a big part of why an episode might you know, catch people's attention and be interesting. How would you incorporate like, the idea of having a guest star into a role-playing game? How would you incorporate the idea of a special guest star in a role-playing game, assuming that it's something special and amazing? Um, I, I'm going to take the first crack yeah. at this. I have had the great joy of having John Tynes visit me while I was running a Unknown Armies game. <laughs> and so there was a, uh, a character who had been an established NPC and was sort of you know famous and weird, and he was sort of this... Basically, it was a rumor hobo. He had all this information, <laughs> and it was always like, "Well, we'll see if we can get to the." I forget what his what his name was. It was, it was like you know, Prince of Franklin Street or something. And we'll see if we can get to the prince and get some information for you. And so he was already already a presence in the game. And so when John Tynes came to visit me, I said, "I'm running my Unknown Armies game on Monday night. Would you like to come play?" He says, "You." could not keep me away and I said uh, you're going to play the, a rumor hobo and here's what he does in the in the game and he says great and I said and for this I feel like this is the time to give them a great rumor that you are really going to bring it and the thing that you know is where the timbers from the Noah's Ark are stored uh, because this is an actual historical thing an Armenian patriarch came to the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893 the year before that he'd climbed Mount Ararat in search of the uh, of Noah's Ark and he said he found it so goes up Mount Ararat in 1892 says found the Ark comes back down, immediately goes to Chicago. What is at Chicago in the World's Fair of 1893 but the first Ferris wheel? <laughs> Obviously, he brought the timbers with him to Chicago and had a gigantic sorceress wheel of fortune erected with them to, you know, empower the city, to drive its rise to magical glory. And then, you know, he went away and disappeared, and the timbers were lost. So no one knows legitimately what happened to the first Ferris wheel. It suddenly just wasn't there. So 
I said, this is the rumor that you have. This is what you, the information. You can tell them whatever you want, but we're ending in wherever dark Chicago <laughs> oubliette the timbers of, the, uh, of Noah's Ark are stored. And he said, yes. He came in. It was killer. Everyone was like, oh, my God, John Tynes. They hadn't known that he was going to be the guest star. <laughs> right. It was gigantic. We did uh, an incredible uh, uh, Army sorcery. And he was devoured by uh, animate dark cockroach shadows uh, that were sent uh, to basically put there to pr- protect the timbers by the bad guys that had salted them away. And that was how you do a guest star if your guest star is John Tynes. <laughs> <laughs> As a codicil, I will say that uh, he comes back to my house and he says, what was all that ritual magic stuff that you guys were doing in Unknown Armies. I said, well, that's just how we play Unknown Armies. And he says, so you've been playing Unknown Armies second edition already. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where tilts and and the, that ritual magic system in uh, second edition came from, was John watching my players mess with the Unknown Armies magic oh, system. Fine. So that's why I wanted to get that story. Do you guys have really good. a good story of that ilk? No, I mean, the, one of the sort of useful things with guest stars is, or op- options for guest stars is I've played a couple of LARPs where Jim, we go to Jim like I would call someone and Jim can hand them a phone and ring like a, I could call literally ring a ringer outside mm. the room um, which really helps the whole LARPy aspect because you, you have just the, sort of the immediacy of the phone calls plus the GM putting on a funny voice the other thing with guest I wanted to guest GMs in a LARP I had I was supposed to be this, like you know, dark ominous secret like you know, vamp, gritty vampire LARP and one of the guest GMs apparently on a whim or because he was drunk I don't know Introduce cold fusion. <laughs> so, like, you know, a cult ceremony is uh, summoning demons. Everyone goes, cold fusion! <laughs> and the LARP is, like, derailed for, like, four sessions. Okay, I guess I've, I've got a story. I know you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Rob Hudson has an anecdote. So, let's see. <laughs> I designed 4th edition D&D, was in Seattle, and one of my frequent players was a guy named Mike uh, Failauer, real good guy. He could be a game designer, but instead he does things like he worked for Penny Arcade and now he runs Child's Play. And um, gave some really good ideas that, for 13th Age. And uh, Mike called me up and we were supposed to be playing the Wednesday game and said, hey, can I bring a friend? And I said, okay, I guess so. And he's like, okay, well, just one warning, it's Will Wheaton. And I was like, <laughs> okay, all right, I'll see if I can scramble players up. So I'm thinking, what the hell do I do? And so I'm going to make a, a moral of the story after the, afterwards. So I'll just tell the story first. So I realize I'm not going to try to introduce him as a normal character in this. And I think, what the hell can I do that'll be fun for all of us? And so I decide I'm going to make him a living library. Uh, since they're already supposedly on a raid against an elven library, he's going to be the spirit of that library. And at any time he wishes to pull one of his leaves off, if he recites a poem, he can cast a spell. And so that'll have something to do with the poem. And so I... I, I don't know, write some things down on a piece of paper. I explain to him the guidelines, and then he does it. And of course, as you might imagine, he does improv frickin' theater, right? <laughs> and it was great. It was hilarious, you know? And so apparently at the end of the night, he's driving home with Failour, and he's like, wow, your friend sure managed to like do improv on the fly quickly, like running fourth edition. He really knows the system. 
And Fallow was like, he designed it. <laughs> he's like, that's Rob Hazel? Oh! So, yeah, that was, yeah, that was pretty good. So, so the moral is, you're the guest star in someone else's dungeon. Yes. But right. the real moral is this. Oh, damn it. Don't, don't treat guest stars just like every other player. Do something fun for them that really suits their personality. Go ahead and break the rules of the game. Because the rest of your players have to play by the rules. The guest star does not. And that way, they everybody is going to remember it as something completely different than what they've ever experienced. And that's what you want. You want the guest star moment to be huge. Because I've done it the other way, and I think, ah, oh, no. It always works better to pump it up. All right. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. Another question. Yeah. What's the best way to research modern intelli- foreign intelligence agencies? <laughs> wait, wait. What is the best way to research modern foreign intelligence agencies? Hold on. Beat, beat, beat. For nice black agents. <laughs> um, I, I think, as with many things, you can start with uh, globalsecurity.org or Wikipedia or any other sort of generalized bunch of knowledge. A lot of times, that'll be all that you need because sometimes you just need to know, you know, what's the name of the agency that we're suddenly getting across? And regardless of its other strengths or his, or storied history, what you really want to know is, is the guy we're dealing with right now a vampire tool or a cool guy or an incompetent? Right, those are basically your three modes mm-hmm. in NBA of NPC play, and so even if you know traditionally the Ukrainian intelligence service, the SBU, is riven with Soviet or Russian penetration, that it's horribly corrupt and that it is engaged in constant bureaucratic infighting amongst itself. If the one guy you've met in Kiev is a stand-up guy, it doesn't matter about the rest of the agency. The, thing, the time the agency's actual rep or skills matter is when the players have angered the agency or have angered someone who has power over the agency. Because if you've angered a guy who's in charge of the Moldovan secret police, well, probably not a problem once you're out of Moldova. It's probably kind of a problem when you're in Moldova. But there's lots of ways out. If you anger someone in the GRU, well, good luck. Uh, the world is their oyster. 
and they do a lot of wet work. I mean, the, the CIA goes, man, that is, that is harsh. So once you're looking at the sort of larger picture, what you generally need to find is either a memoir by someone from the agency. If it's a, a sort of an enemy agency, there's often uh, you know, a defector who's written a memoir. Everything written by spies should be treated as a lie. Assembling an objective history of espionage, I think, is actually impossible. Because even more than regular history, everyone involved is a big liar. I mean, they're selected Darwinian style for that. (laughs) But an entertaining lie or an informative lie or a useful lie works even better in your game than the quotidian, ugly, bureaucratic truth does. So memoirs by people who are in it, failing that, memoirs by spies who, you know, opposed them is a good way. And oftentimes you can just do like a, a Google News search. And if they show up in the news and all of it is weird bombing, <laughs> you're like, well, I kind of know their MO. <laughs> what, what if, if my players make them mad, they should not get into a car. Um, other agencies, they'll say, oh, really great SIGINT capability. And you'll say, okay, players should stay off their cell phone. And you'll have a notion of the vector through which they attack. But as with any research, research until you until you're bored, but there's no such thing as too much information uh, to have in your own head, and it's all fun and evocative, and you'll find some weird little side trail that maybe you didn't intend the Moldovan secret police to be a big part of your campaign, but if you find some, you know, I don't know, some uh, soccer player that got murdered or something, you can say, I'll bet that's a vampire thing, and you can pull it up and have a fun detail that because it's tied into the world of tradecraft and espionage, it has... A, a, a better gloss than just, oh, we went to the wrong you know, neighborhood in Kishinev and got whacked, right? Yeah, the other thing I'd add is the, like, the plus feature on Google is your friends, like you know, GRU plus scandal, GRU plus vampire, plus occult, plus serial killing, plus ritual. <laughs> just try, the, try those, see what crops up. Normally something, okay, you get some fun little anecdote which will fit into a game. All right, yeah. So, uh, Fritz Leiber wrote Nice Black Agents. Other than, than that story, do you have a favorite work by Leiber, and what would it be? Uh, Fritz Leiber wrote uh, a story called Nice Black Agents. I, I think it's actually a story collection. I don't know that yes, there's a story is, yeah, of that name. My favorite work by Fritz Leiber is Our Lady of Darkness. But this is like saying my favorite Beethoven symphony <laughs> is the seventh. True, but come on. Our Lady of Darkness is my favorite because of the Clark Ashton Smith connection. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a urban fantasy about secret mystical geography being weaponized by an undead magician against a drunk failed writer, not <laughs> unlike Fritz Leiber, living in the apartment Fritz Leiber was living in in San Francisco at the time. And so it's it's this you know sort of not quite honest but sort of bare look at his own emotional state. It's a little bit of Mary Sue, but that's okay. It was the seventies. Clark Ashton Smith, like I say, has a come in. It's San Francisco occult history, San Francisco geography. If you love that city as much as I do, it's just instantly evocative and cool. And the opening bit where he's looking through binoculars at his own window from a cliff in San Francisco when he sees a tan shadowy form in his own window. Hmm. It's one of the scariest things ever written. So again, I could say Smoke Ghost. I could say Conjure Wife. I could say a million other library things. I don't, I don't know... You know, Leiber has maybe written five bad stories and one bad novel in his entire career. Anything by Fritz Leiber is worthwhile. But for me, Our Lady of Darkness, when I opened it, I already knew Fritz Leiber. And I kept 
ever more ecstatic, ever more joyful, and ever more terrified as I read uh, that novel. And I have been homaging slash ripping it off uh, ever since. I think for me it was probably the, you know the thing I that had the biggest imp- uh, impact. Obviously, was going to be Fafar to the Grey Mauser, but the other one was the Big Time. Yeah. Which, and the Big Time's picture of a multiverse which is divided into spiders, which is worlds where the, the game has pieces that move like a knight, and snakes, which is where the world has pieces that move around a board, and our world being a battlefield planet that has both, that really sunk in. <laughs> that was. I have enough beyond earlier darkness, so we'll move on. All right. Um, yeah, you in the back. Yes. yes. Okay, so we all know that all genres are improved by adding dinosaurs to them. <laughs> <laughs> Which genre is the most improved by adding dinosaurs, and what's that about? All right. Uh, the question is, as we all know, all genres are improved by adding dinosaurs. Arguendo, then, what is the genre that is most improved by adding dinosaurs, and what does that look like? Uh, Gar? I'm doing a project at the moment where I'm reading a short story every day and like tweeting like, my reaction to it. So I'll dig up the actual author of this. I can't remember off the top of my head. But the answer is paleontology. <laughs> <laughs> because the short story where these guys go to this like, deserted island in the South Seas. They're mining guano, I think, or something. They find a cave. They find bones there. They disturb the bones. Dinosaur ghost! <laughs> Eats them. It is fantastic. Like five pages long. And just, there's a dinosaur ghost, and it eats them. It was lovely. <laughs> Rob? Paranormal romance. Yeah. Um, because the genre has had too many wolves and people longingly, long hair, looking at each other, pack masters, etc. And um, it needs... It needs a triceratops and the doomed love of a T-Rex. But those are the spirit animals of the people involved. They only, you know, it comes out during those tense moments when they're most close together. And suddenly, T-Rex and T-Rex. Yeah, anyway. Right. Take it from there. It's, 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 it's called My Cretaceous Love. It will be available in fine bookstores everywhere, spring of 2023. Um, I think that... One argument is pick the worst genre, therefore it would be the one most improved by uh, dinosaurs, and so that would be the sort of teen confessional uh, genre. You know, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, and an Apatosaurus, something like that. <laughs> um, but I feel like you should look for what's the biggest, you know, synergy, right? Where is a thing that is almost, it just almost over the top? And I don't know how many people, uh, you know, grew up in Oklahoma in the 1970s, hopefully none of you, but one genre of fiction, and there's a guy named Webb Griffin, who I think is the main author of it, but it's all sort of heroic American soldiers, and often they have a tank, and it's like... We're supposed to be ghost stuffed dinosaurs, aren't we? Uh, not ghost dinosaurs. Okay, fair enough. All right. Um, and, and, you know, it's really just, here's the Battle of Sicily, but we've got pretend characters in it. And it's like, I don't have a problem with that per se, but it's, I could read the actual history. I don't need this guy's, John Jakes did the same thing with like colonial history and sex scenes. So fine, but you know, come on. So what I say is you take your sort of web griffin, hard bitten American easy company type guys. And instead of tanks, they have dinosaurs (laughs) or instead of the Nazi gun emplacement, it's the Nazi 
Velociraptor compound. Now you're talking. Now I would read that. And it's it's not that that's a bad genre. It's just, you know, it's like good meat, but there's no seasoning on it. Dinosaurs are the seasoning on the steak of World War II male adventure novel. We're running close to time, so lightning round? Lightning round, yeah. Let's do lightning round. Good. Uh, or let's do it. Lightning, lightning round! round! Yes. Uh, why is Boris Johnson not leaving power? Oh, why is Boris Johnson not leaving power? Will explode. <laughs> Fears legal consequences. <laughs> uh, uh, is cursed. <laughs> yes. Um, if there's a vampire conspiracy in the 13th Age Dragon Empire, which icon is embedded in the uh, conspiracy? Which icon is embedded in the uh, conspiracy in 13th Age Vampire Conspiracy? Mm. Well, Lich King is the obvious answer. Mm, no. But, but I'm, I, the no. obvious answer is wrong. <laughs> no, no. Too obvious. Uh, Emperor. Mm. Emperor all the way. Everybody <laughs> looks at him like, lie on some of this throne. I'm just so drunk on blood. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I would say um, uh, the, the, the sort of the easy answer is Prince of Shadows, mm-hmm. but I'm inclined to say uh, the Elf Queen. Next. Yeah. Most interesting system to run a game based on the writings of Arthur Mackin. Most interesting system to run an uh, Arthur Mackin-based game. Ooh, don't know. I mean, my, uh, my, my, my brain goes to Trail, but that's like a more sort of soft, comfortable blanket, I suppose, than anything else. No, I, I, I would go for Trail in the absence of anything that leaps out at me. For me, Arthur Mackin is like the first Unknown Armies writer. Uh, it would be Unknown Armies. Got nothing. All right. <laughs> yeah. Real reason for the sinking of the SS El Faro. The real reason for the sinking of the SS El Faro. The El Faro sank? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Alert my broker. <laughs> Kid wants the El Faro. We, we're moving on. If HP Lovecraft had been into espionage, what would the result have been? If HP Lovecraft had been into espionage, what would the result have been? There is a novel by Richard Lupoff called Lovecraft's Book, in which he teams up with German propagandist uh, uh, Oscar Virak. Uh, it's something Virak, and uh, he gets tied up in Nazi sa- sabotage and subterfuge. Uh, Lovecraft's Book by Richard Lupoff. Richard Lupoff sadly passed. He wrote a much longer version of it called Marblehead, which I have not got through. Uh, this is not up to Richard Lupoff's fault. It's, it's all mine. But uh, that's what it would have looked like. Um, he would have been a Bundist. He would have been tied in with a freaking German-American Bund. Uh, Lovecraft had a lot of virtues, but um, uh, that was not one of them. If you want a good Lovecraft spy, he's working for the British uh, agents of influence in America during World War One, trying to get us into the war. But then you've got sort of young Lovecraft, uh, which is not necessarily the classic Lovecraft. Okay. Yeah. Best downtown Indianapolis hotel. Best downtown Indianapolis hotel. Embassy Suites. That is not even remotely true. <laughs> <laughs> that is wrong. <laughs> one, one where the bar spins, stays open late. <laughs> so none. That's your answer. I've stayed in one that's on the. It's like uh, up by the basketball stadium, and I think it's called the Alexa, something like that. That's really sweet. If it's not called that, it's something like that, but it's sort of a boutique hotel. I did not stay on my own nickel, I hasten to add, but it was very nice. We're pretty much running on time. All right, so in that case, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. 
wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken and Robin. Share a nature fact with our rhino-rific latest design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hart. And he's at Mythholder. And I'm at Rob Hanzo. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. (laughs) 